first presentation is entitled the, the Holding of the Four Winds and the Sealing of the 144,000. And I'm going to start with a familiar passage, probably a couple of familiar passages from the pen of Ellen White. The first one is from Testimonies, Volume 9, page 11. We are living in the time of the end. The fast-fulfilling signs of the times declare that the coming of Christ is near at hand. The days in which we live are solemn and important. The Spirit of God is gradually but surely being withdrawn from the earth. Plagues and judgments are already falling upon the despisers of the grace of God. The calamities by land and sea, the unsettled state of society, the alarms of war are portentous. They forecast approaching events of the greatest magnitude. Do you see that out there today? You better believe it. Continuing, the agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. You know, sometimes we have this mentality that, oh, you know, I've heard my whole life that Jesus is coming, and let's have a theme about for such a time as this, and we say it with our lips that we believe that Jesus is coming soon. But if you're honest with yourself in your heart, do you really think that the final movements, which will be rapid, are just around the corner. And the reason I ask you that question is because sometimes you can tell if you're living your life that way or if you're thinking that way in your mind based on how you live your life based on the choices that you're making. Where do you invest your resources? Where do you invest your time? What is the most important thing for you in your life? Are you, are you living your life with the thought in mind that great changes are soon to take place in our world and the final movements will be rapid ones? Another familiar statement from Testimonies, Volume 8, page 28. Transgression has almost reached its limit. Confusion fills the world, and a great terror is soon to come upon human beings. The end is very near. We who know the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. Did you hear that? Who should be preparing for what is to break upon the world? We who know the truth. Now, I dare say that if the final movements were to kick in sometime soon, it might just come as an overwhelming surprise for many Seventh-day Adventists. And you know, that should not be the case. But here's the thing. If we as Seventh-day Adventists are not preparing, if we're not studying, if we don't understand what the end-time roadmap looks like, we're going to be shocked out of our minds when that time comes. Oh, I heard it in Bible class when I was growing up, but I never really thought it would happen in my lifetime. Listen, we who know the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. And Ellen White says basically the same thing in Prophets and Kings, page 626. Christians should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise, and this preparation they should make by diligently studying the Word of God and striving to conform their lives to its precepts. So how do we prepare for this overwhelming surprise? 
by diligently studying the Word of God. Does that sound like a good idea to you? Listen, it's too late in Earth's history to be wasting our time worrying about what Hollywood is doing or what's happening in the entertainment world or anything else. We should know what the Word of God says for this time. We should be preparing. Now, with those introductory comments from Ellen White, I want to point out what the Bible says about the time that we are living in. And as I said, what we are going to do in this first presentation is we are going to look at where we are in Earth's history based on what the seals say in Revelation chapter 6 and a little bit of chapter 7. Now, I'm assuming that those of you who are sitting here in the audience today are seasoned students of prophecy as longtime Seventh-day Adventists, so I'm not going to take a significant amount of time to go through each of the seals. I'm assuming that you already know this, so I'm just going to give you a brief rundown. Now, I will say this, if you've never studied the seals and if you don't know what they're talking about, it's time to get into the Word of God and study that, amen? All right, now look, when you come to the seals, you start off with four horses. You have the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. Those are synonymous with the first four seals. And we understand that historically the white horse represents the pure church, the apostolic church, which was from the time of the ascension of Christ from 31 AD to 100 AD. Then we shift to the red horse by verse 4 of chapter 6. And this red horse describes the persecuted Christian church from about the time period of 180 to 313 AD. And that culminated with a final 10 years of persecution under the Roman emperor Diocletian. After the red horse, you have the black horse. This is when corruption enters into the church, and historically we place that between 313 to 538 A.D. This correlates with the third church in Revelation, where you see the doctrine of Balaam entering into the church. You see the doctrine of the Nicolaitans coming into the church. You see that Satan's seat dwells there. And then finally, the fourth horse, or the pale horse, sickly or blighted in color is what pale means, is the apostate Christian church from 538 to about 1374. And the reason why I place it till about 1374 is that around 1374, that is when John Wycliffe, the great reformer, the morning star of the Reformation, comes along and brings light to a darkened world. And then you come to the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. And here you see the, the souls crying under the altar, figuratively speaking, saying, How long, Lord, till you judge and avenge our blood? And white robes are given to them. They're told that they should rest for a little season. Okay, that's a brief rundown. That should be pretty simple review. This is where things become much more interesting for the time that we are living in. Once we get to the beginning of the sixth seal. Because when you study the seals, you find that we are living 
at the end of the sixth seal. And I'm going to point you to some clear historical events that have happened during the time of the sixth seal just to remind us that we really are living at the end of the world. This isn't just business as usual. We're not living 500 years ago where in the 1500s or the 1600s you could say, yeah, Jesus probably isn't coming for a few hundred more years. Now, let's look starting in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 6. And here we read, and I, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. When was that great earthquake? This was the great Lisbon earthquake of November 1, 1755, that was felt throughout all of Europe. It destroyed the city of Lisbon with a tidal wave and with fire, and it was felt as far away as North America. November 1, 1755. So the sixth seal begins in history in 1755, which is about 250 years ago now. <clears throat> Continuing. So there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. When did this happen in Earth's history? This is the dark day of May 19, 1780. Now this becomes interesting because there were people who were alive in 1780 who lived to see the falling of the stars, which is the next sign foretold, in 1833. And so those who lived between the time period of 1780 to the time period of 1833 realized these are the signs that were foretold that showed that Jesus would be coming very soon. And in fact, you see the falling of the stars in verse 13, which happened on November 13, 1833. <clears throat> now, how important are these events the Lisbon earthquake, the dark day, the falling of the stars. They're mentioned here in Revelation chapter 6. How relevant are they for signs of the times describing the coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven? Well, they're so important that they are mentioned three times in the Gospels, spoken by Jesus himself, and then a fourth time they show up here in the book of Revelation, and they are identified in Revelation as the opening of the sixth seal, which proceeds, or precedes the second coming of Jesus Christ. You see this in Matthew 24, 29, Mark 13, 24, and 25, and Luke chapter 21, verse 25. Jesus mentioned these signs. 1,700 years before they even happened, 17 to 1,800 years before they happened. And so they happen at the beginning of the sixth seal. And then you come to the end of verse 13. And then when you come to verse 14, after the falling of the stars is mentioned, notice what is mentioned next in verse 14. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So the question is, what is the very 
very next thing mentioned during the time of the sixth seal, but sh after the falling of the stars in 1833. This is the coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. Now let me ask you something. Let's just look at these events briefly. November 1, 1755. May 19, 1780. November 13, 1833. So between the Lisbon earthquake and the dark day, you have 25 years. From the dark day to the falling of the stars, you have 53 years. And then, after 1833, then the second coming is mentioned. How long has it been since 1833? 180 years. 180 years. And that begs a question. What's taken so long? Have you ever wondered that? 1755, 1780, 1833, second coming. We're still here 180 years later. What's going on? Those first three events just happen one right after the other, so to speak, prophetically speaking. Listen, 30 and 50 years prophetically is a very short period of time when you're looking at time prophecies of 1260 years, 2300 years. Yet, you would expect, based on the rapidity of how those first three events took place, you would expect that around the same time, within a similar time frame, Jesus would then come in the clouds of heaven, and yet here we are 180 years since the last event took place, and about 250 years since the first one happened, or longer, 260 maybe. What's going on here? Does the Bible give us any clues as to the timing of the second coming after the falling of the stars? Now, we understand that there was one other key prophecy that was fulfilled after 1833, right? Daniel and Revelation are closely connected. What happens after 1833? 2300-day prophecy reaches its fulfillment in 1844. And 1844 ushers in the judgment hour, and the judgment hour and the cleansing of the sanctuary is the time in which God is preparing a people to be ready when he comes in the clouds of heaven. That is implied when you study prophecy, when you see this gap between 1833 and the second coming, you know from your study of the rest of prophecy that the, the prophecy of the 2300 days in 1844 is right after the falling of the stars. However, when you go to the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 7, you see just exactly why we are still here. Do you want to see that? Do you want to see why we are still here? Let's look at Revelation chapter 7. And again, the theme of this conference is for such a time as this. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, 
till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and it was 144,000. So, you see the Lisbon earthquake, a devastating earthquake in the scope of human history. You see the dark day of May 19, 1780. You see the falling of the stars in 1833. Then you see the coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. Then you see that before Jesus comes, the four angels who hold the four winds from the four corners of the earth are going to release those winds which will be, bring destruction to this earth, but they are commanded to not release the winds until the 144,000 are sealed. What does that tell us? What that tells us is that we will not see the final unleashing of the winds which precede the second coming of Jesus until God has a people who are ready to be sealed. And listen, what does it mean to have the seal of God placed in your forehead? Who's being sealed here? It's the 144,000. When you go to Revelation chapter 14, what does it say about what the 144,000 have in their foreheads there? It says they have the Father's name in their foreheads. What do we know about the Father's name? Isaiah 57 verse 15 says that His name is holy. So God is working to prepare a people who are holy, who have his name in their foreheads. And by the way, as a neurologist, I like that because the forehead is where the frontal lobe is, and the frontal lobe is the moral center of our brain. That's where we make every choice that we make related to morality. So it would make sense that God would put the stamp of his holy character in the place where his people have made choices to be like him. Now, Ellen White has a statement that goes along with the holding of the four winds. This is from Early Writings, page 38. I saw four angels who had a work to do on the earth and were on their way to accomplish it. Jesus was clothed with priestly garments. He gazed in pity on the remnant and then raised his hands and with a voice of deep pity cried, My blood, Father, my blood, my blood, my blood. Aren't you thankful that we have a merciful Savior? He wants us to be in the kingdom. Listen, don't get the idea from anybody that Jesus is trying to keep us out. Jesus risked all of eternity to come to this earth to die for us so that we could be with him. He's not, he didn't come down here to make things so hard that very few could get in. His goal is to have as many get in as possible. Okay, continuing. Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from God who sat upon the great white throne and was shed all about Jesus. Then I saw an angel with a commission from Jesus swiftly flying to the four angels who had a work to do on the earth and waving something up and down in his hand and crying with a loud voice, hold, 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 hold until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. 
And then she goes on to say, the angels were allowed to, uh, about to let the winds go, but while their hands were loosening and the four winds were about to blow, the merciful eye of Jesus gazed on the remnant that were not sealed, and he raised his hands to the Father and pleaded with him that he had spilled his blood for them. You realize that the four winds could have been released a long time ago? And Jesus tells the Father, not yet, hold off. I love my remnant too much. I want them to be ready. I want them to be prepared. Because when the four winds are released, Satan is going to use all of his satanic power to do whatever he can to bring destruction to whoever he can. And God knows that in order for his people to go through that time, they need his name in their forehead. They need his character in their forehead. They need that sealing process. Now, have you ever thought what it's going to be like when the four winds are released? Let me just read to you. One statement. This is Review and Herald, July 25, 1906. Ellen White speaking here. Now comes the word that I have declared that New York is to be swept away by a tidal wave. This I have never said. I have said as I looked at the great buildings going up there, story after story, what terrible scenes will take place when the Lord shall arise to shake terribly the earth. And by the way, that's from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 19 and 21, when the Lord arises to shake terribly the earth. And in volume 7 of the Testimonies, page 141, she identifies that time as when Sunday legislation is passed. Why do I mention that? Because some people are using the quote that I'm reading now about the destruction of New York to say that the Lord arose to shake terribly the earth on 9-11. And they don't take that in context. The Lord arises to shake terribly the earth when Sunday legislation is passed. But she is saying something terrible is going to happen to the city of New York and many other cities when that time takes place. Notice what she says. What terrible scenes will take place when the Lord shall arise to shake terribly the earth. Then the words of Revelation 18, 1 through 3 will be fulfilled. The whole of the 18th chapter of Revelation is a warning of what is coming on the earth. But I have no light in particular in regard to what is coming on New York City only that I know that one day the great buildings there will be thrown down by the turning and overturning of God's power. From the light given me, I know that destruction is in the world. One word from the Lord, one touch of his mighty power, and these massive structures will fall. Scenes will take place, the fearfulness of which we cannot imagine. Scenes will take place the fearfulness of which we cannot imagine. Listen, we need to wake up. This isn't just business as usual. God is preparing a people for such a time as this to warn the world. That's why ASI exists, to bring professionals and supporting ministries together to develop concepts and ideas that will prepare the world for the coming of Jesus. Because we see that cities like New York, their, their buildings are going to come crashing down. And if you thought 9-11 was bad, that was three buildings. Three buildings. Just wait till the Lord arises to shake terribly the earth. Okay. I'm going to read one more statement from Ellen White right now. And then we're going to do an interesting look into the book of Ezekiel. Because what we've seen so far is this. 
When you look at the scope of history based on the seals, the first four seals take us up to about 1374. The fifth seal and takes us up to about 1755. The sixth seal is inaugurated with the Lisbon earthquake. We have 1755, 1780 dark day, 1833 falling of the stars. The judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary begin in 1844. Then we see that Jesus will come in the clouds of heaven. But before he does, the four winds of destruction will be released upon the earth. But before those four winds are released, God needs to have a people who are sealed. And let's be honest with ourselves. That has not yet happened. God is looking for a people for such a time as this who will allow God to place the seal, the stamp of his character into their foreheads. He's got a little bit of a problem, though. I'm just going to lay it straight here. He looks around our church, and he finds young people that know the Harlem Shake better than they know the Bible. He finds people who know their favorite entertainment shows and sports teams and you name it more than they know Jesus and the Word of God. And he's looking around trying to find a group of people who he can place his seal upon. And he's waiting. He's waiting. But you know what? Eventually some people are going to wake up that he can place his stamp on. And if you're still sleeping, you better watch out. It's time to wake up, and what we're going to look at right now is a warning message to God's last day people who have a mentality that Jesus will probably come sometime way in the future, but it's certainly not going to be in my lifetime. We're going to look at what the Bible says about such a mentality. And we're going to go to Testimonies, Volume 5, page 207, which is a it's from the chapter entitled The Seal of God. If you haven't read that chapter recently, it's from page 207 to 216. I would highly encourage you to read that chapter. Notice what Ellen White says here, page 207 of Testimonies, Volume 5. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Now, where is Ellen White quoting from here? She's quoting from the Bible. This is Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, let me say this. The shepherd's rod have hijacked Ezekiel 8 in chapter 9, and they say that they are going to be the angel with the destroying weapon that will come into the church and cleanse it of its wickedness. That's a bunch of nonsense. But listen, just because the shepherd's rod have hijacked these two chapters doesn't mean that we can't go back and study it and come to a correct biblical understanding of what, of what God is saying to us, right? And why would I go to this chapter? Because Ellen White uses Ezekiel 8 and 9 to identify issues in God's last day church that are preventing his people from receiving the seal of God. So I find that a study of Ezekiel chapter 8 and Ezekiel chapter 9 would be highly relevant for us. Amen? 
We should know what Ezekiel chapter 8 and Ezekiel chapter 9 are talking about because in it contains a message of warning to prepare a people to be ready to receive the seal of God. Ellen White specifically quotes from this chapter. And she goes on to say, and she's quoting here, and to the others he said in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite, let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Stay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, that's the seal of God, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they begin at the ancient men which were before the house. And then Ellen White says, Jesus is about to leave the mercy seat of the heavenly sanctuary to put on garments of vengeance and pour out his wrath and judgments upon those who have not responded to the light God has given him. And then she says, because God has born long with men, he hasn't executed judgment. Instead of men having their hearts softened by his forbearance, their hearts become hardened and they say, God's never going to judge me. I can just keep doing this as long as I want. So let's look now at Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. Now Ezekiel is in captivity in Babylon when he receives this vision. And he's taken off in vision back to the temple in Jerusalem, which had to initially thrill his heart. He's in captivity in Babylon. And then God reveals to him in vision the temple, the sanctuary in Jerusalem, which was the pride and joy of every Jew. And starting in verse 3, notice what Ezekiel says. And he put forth the form of an hand and took me by a lock of mine head. And the spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now, the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes, the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. Now notice, God specifically points out this image so Ezekiel would take note of what this image is. Where is this image? It's by the north gate leading into the house of God. Now, we are not told exactly what this image is, but we are told that it provoked God to jealousy. Did you realize that God can get jealous? Listen, if anyone in the entire universe has the right to be jealous, it is the God of heaven. He sent Jesus to this earth to die for our sins, to provide a way of salvation for us. And he has a godly jealousy over us so that we will have salvation. And when he sees anything that comes in the way of bringing salvation to us, it prevents us from walking in the way of salvation. This provokes the jealousy of God. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, in the Ten Commandments, God says, don't make any graven images. Don't bow down to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And you know what? We should be glad that God is jealous over us. 
Listen, wives or husbands, if your spouse was not jealous over you, wouldn't something be wrong with them? If your spouse was just like, you know what, you can have whoever you want, just come by the house every once in a while and I'm good. Is that the kind of spouse you're looking for? Who would want to have a spouse like that? Would you want to have a God like that? Just do whatever you want. Come by every once in a while and that'll be good enough for me. Jesus gave everything for us and he loves us so much that he has a godly jealousy over us to protect us, to keep us from evil. And when he sees evil coming into our midst, into our hearts and into our lives, it it provokes jealousy in his heart because he loves us. Now listen, this is a vision that Ezekiel had of the condition of the Jewish people who remained behind in Jerusalem during the time of the captivity in Babylon. But here's the thing. Ellen White uses this vision from Ezekiel 8 and 9 to describe the condition of God's church in the last days at the time of the sealing of God's people. So do you think this is relevant to us? You better believe it. She goes to describe point by, well, not point by point, but she lists several points from these chapters that are relevant to God's people today. And here's the first point. As Ezekiel comes towards the house of God, the place where God's people worship, God points out to him something that is provoking him to jealousy. It is something that is in the house of God related to the worship of God's people. Listen, if you put something in the house of God that is provoking God to jealousy and it's in his house, it has to be related to how they are worshiping. Now let me ask you something. Here we are living in the judgment hour of earth's history. Jesus is trying to come. He's trying to place a seal upon his people. Do you think it's possible that in our churches today, not all of them, but perhaps some of them, hopefully not many, do you think there are things that have been placed into the worship service that could provoke the jealousy of God? Listen, we need to stop playing games and beating around the bush here. We can keep playing that game for another hundred years, but God is looking for a group of people who are just going to come in. They're going to say, this is what the Bible says. Jesus is trying to prepare a group of people to be sealed in their foreheads, and we can do things in our worship service that will provoke the jealousy of God, that will prevent us from receiving the seal of God. When I read my Bible, and when I read what the writings of Ellen White says, Ellen White says, for example, that just before the close of probation, this is second selected messages, page 36, just before the close of probation, there will be dancing and drums and all kinds of music which drives off the Holy Spirit. Don't you think if that kind of stuff is in our churches, it would provoke the jealousy of God? There There were images by the north gate of the temple of Jerusalem that provoked the jealousy of God. But that's not it. We're just getting started here. Let's keep reading. Ezekiel chapter 8, moving on to verse 6. He said furthermore unto me, Son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, 
but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. And he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. So now he's looking through a hole in the wall of God's sanctuary. Verse 8. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. Verse 10. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things, an abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients. These are the leaders of the church of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jeazina, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. A worship service is taking place here. Led by the, the leaders of the temple, Jeazaniah and Shaphan. And they were offering incense before God. This would be apparently in the holy place, by the altar of incense. And in the context of this worship service, God is saying, look at all the idols that are on the wall in the sanctuary. You thought it was bad that there was an image in the outer court that provoked me to jealousy? It's not just in the outer court, it's in the inner sanctuary. And they're doing it in the context of trying to have a worship service. Listen, just because we can get up and sing praises to the name of God, if it's done in the context of the idols of this world being mixed with it, God considers that an abomination. And listen, we can't just sugarcoat over it and say, oh, well, it's just poetry and rhythm. What's the big deal? God has a right way for us to follow. Now, continuing... Verse 12, then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery, for they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Here's what happens. You see in the outer core an image that provokes God to jealousy. You see in the inner sanctuary every type of idol and creeping abominable beasts, abominations and idols in the context of worship, and God is saying, here's why this is happening. God's people have allowed these idols, these images, these abominations to come into the worship of God because I am showing you into the secret lives that they are living. And he points out specifically leaders in the church, and he says, look what they do in the dark when no one is looking. They think that not only is no human noticing what they are doing, they think that God isn't even paying attention anymore. They say God has forsaken the earth, and sadly we have seen in perhaps recent times that there are people that we have looked up to, we have been blessed by their ministry, and then we realized that in the dark they weren't really following God. And that's a warning to each one of us. We can come to ASI, we can come to church, we can put on our nice clothes and say, happy Sabbath, good to see you, God bless, but what's going on in the heart? Because 
You may say in your heart, I've been addicted to this sin for 25 years, 30 years, 50 years, and I haven't had any trouble. I have a good business. I make a good salary. Nothing bad's ever happened to me. God's apparently not paying any attention to this sin in my life. I can just keep on doing this for as long as I want. God has forsaken the earth. He's not coming in my lifetime. And maybe I'll have a deathbed conversion. Listen, that is no attitude to have during the time of earth's history that God is trying to seal his people. But that's not it. Continuing, verse 13, he said unto me, turn thee yet again and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Who's Tammuz? I'll just tell you, this is from Near Eastern Babylonian mythology that there was a goddess Ishtar who miraculously had a virgin birth, and her son was Tammuz, and he was the savior of the world. This is a false messiah, a false Christ. And here you have God's people. They're waiting for the real messiah to come, but they've grown tired of waiting for the real messiah to come, so they start worshiping a false messiah a god from Babylon. Now, there's a clear application here. You know, we don't see women of the church sitting around weeping for a false god the way the ancient Jews were worshiping, but could it be possible that just as the Jews of old were waiting for the Messiah to come, and they turn to a false messiah, Tammuz, that we as God's last people living in the last days, waiting for the real messiah to come the second time, could be turned away to false Babylonian gods that take our attention away from who Jesus is. Now let me tell you how that could happen. When you study the Bible carefully, you find that not only is Jesus Savior who died on the cross. He's also high priest. Not only is he high priest, but he's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. And sometimes in the Christian world, and perhaps even in the Adventist church, some people have a tendency to say, I'm going to pick the type of Jesus that I want. Don't tell me about the kind of Jesus that the rest of Scripture talks about. I only want a Jesus that will forgive my sins, but who won't take the time to cleanse me of the sin of my life. Forgive me, but don't change me. I just want to worship that kind of Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap as the Jews of old who were weeping for a false Messiah. Is Jesus loving and merciful? Absolutely. He's also a God of justice. He's also our high priest. He is working to place his seal upon our foreheads. And we, as his people, are supposed to be that people for such a time as this that he could place his seal in our foreheads. Okay. And it doesn't end there. Verse 15. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun toward the east. Now, I'm hoping that you can see the clear end-time application here. 
because the clear end time application is that at the end of time, unfortunately, there are going to be God's professed people who have worshipped in his house. And when the testing time comes, they will choose to worship the day of the sun rather than the way of God. This is a warning to us. And God says in verse 17, Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Now we see after this warning message that there are some who will not receive the punishment of God in the last days. And that is found... In verse 4, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Listen, there are people in God's church today who are rising up and saying, We are not okay with evolution being taught in our schools. That's not okay. And I know for a fact from having lived in, lived in different parts of the country that there are young people my age who have lost their faith in God based on things they were taught about evolution in some of our schools. That should not be happening. God is going to set a mark upon those who sigh and cry for all the abominations that are done in the land. Now, you may wonder what it means to sigh and cry for the abominations that are done in the land. And clearly, God needs to have people who will stand up, who will call sin by its right name, and who will say, this is not okay. This is going against the word of God. We need some more Elijahs in the church who, do you realize that Elijah prayed that it would stop raining in Israel? Because Israel was saying this rain that is making our land to be so beautiful is coming from Baal. They were denying the God of heaven. And when you look at the book of James, it says he prayed that it would not rain. And then after the three and a half years, he prayed that it would rain again. But there's more to sighing and crying for the abominations than just pointing out to what is wrong in the church. There's also something very proactive and positive that we need to be doing. And I've spent the majority of my time thus far pointing out challenges in our church, things that are preventing the sealing from taking place. But there's also some very positive, proactive things that we can do to prepare for the sealing of God's people. And we want to be among those who are sealed. And I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. And I would dare say that you may not have seen sighing and crying for the abominations in the land quite like this before, but I find it to be very helpful. Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 1, and here we read, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sin. So God is saying, when we speak up about the sins in God's church, we should lift up our voice like a trumpet. It shouldn't be just some little whisper, some little complaint. We should lift up our voice like a trumpet. But notice what God identifies that needs to be done with the sighing and crying. Verse 2. 
Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. So look, he's speaking about a group of people who have a profession of following God. They seek me daily. They delight in the ordinances. They like to come to church. In verse 3, it says, Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Now listen, this is a message to God's last day church, because you fast and afflict your soul on the day of atonement. We are living in the anti-typical day of atonement. And then notice what God says, Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. And this is what God says to his church. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate and to smite with a fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? So God is saying to his church, listen, you've gotten the idea of fasting wrong. It's not a day to sit down and put on bad clothes and to abstain from eating food and saying, okay, Jesus is coming soon. I'm just not going to have any fun now. Let's just tough this out until Jesus comes. And while we're toughing it out, let's fight with other people over the things we disagree with them about. God's saying, that's not the kind of fast I ask you to engage in in the last days. Yet sometimes people think they are doing service for God by just abstaining from things, okay, at least I'm not eating this, at least I'm not eating that, but that's all we're doing. We're not going out and doing the business of the Lord. Here's what God wants us to be doing. Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness? To undo the heavy burdens? And to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? What is God saying to his church? He's saying, here's the fast that I have chosen for you. I want you to be going out and helping people that are downtrodden, that that are the cast down of the earth, that that are the poor of this earth, the needy of this earth, those who have little or no knowledge of me. I'm not asking you to sit in your house and to try to stay away from eating bad food and drinking bad drinks and not watching things you shouldn't be watching. Sure, when you love the Lord, you're going to eat a healthy diet. You're going to eat a healthy plant-based diet. You're not going to fill your mind with trash from TV. Sure, that's good. That's great. That's wonderful. You're going to be doing all the right things out of love for God. But you have it in your mind that if you're just staying away from the bad things, then you're a good Adventist. But that's not what I'm asking from you, Adventists. That's good that you're staying away from bad things, but this is what I'm asking from you, Adventists. Yes, stay away from the bad things. Live your life with such a mind that this is the day of atonement, that this is the judgment hour of earth's history, but there is a lost and dying world out there that needs help. 
and you have what it takes to help them. Listen, I happen to be a physician, but you do not need a medical degree to go out and help people. That's a misnomer that has come into our church. It's like, okay, well, the doctors can help the, the sick people, and the pastors can share the word of God, and never the two shall meet. Do you know what Ellen White says about the separation of the gospel ministry from the, from the health ministry? This is Medical Ministry, page 241. She says, My brethren, the Lord calls for unity, for oneness. We are to be one in the faith. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Our medical missionaries ought to be interested in the work of our conferences, and our conference workers ought to be as much interested in the work of our medical missionaries. Listen, it's supposed to be a blended ministry between physicians and pastors, and not just physicians and pastors, but the laity. It's a combined work of medical missionary work. And I'm really excited to see the initiative that the General Conference is taking under the leadership of Ted Wilson. He certainly has an eye. He has a vision for this. He understands the counsel on this. There's a recent book that came out by Dave Fiedler. It's entitled De Sozo. You should look into getting that. You can talk to me about that book afterwards. But listen, we're not simply supposed to be sitting around, staying away from bad things. We should be going out and helping people. Why should we be going out and helping people? Well, number one, there's plenty of poor people in this world who are sick, who are hungry, who are not clothed properly. And we can help them as an entering wedge. And I can tell you, as a physician, that you don't have to prescribe a prescription of medication to to gain an entering wedge into the hearts and minds of people who are downtrodden and downcast. Sure, I've helped plenty of people through treatment, and it opens the door for them to, to hear what I have to say with regard to my faith, but you don't have to just reach them in a doctor's office. You can see them, your neighbor, people down the street, people who are downcast. You can see those people as someone in, in need. And let me tell you this, humanly speaking, apart from the Spirit of Christ, nobody wants to take the time from your busy schedule, from your personal time. I'm so busy and I want a little bit of time to just relax. You don't feel like taking that time to go out and help those in need, do you? I mean, I don't. I'm talking for, for myself. That's a fast. To engage in something that ordinarily you would not do, because, in, because you wouldn't necessarily, humanly speaking, gain enjoyment from it. However, when the Spirit of God comes into your life, you will find joy in helping others in a way that you have never known before. And it's not just giving clothes to those who are naked, giving food to those who are hungry. There's more to it than that. There's a spiritual element to this. There are people in this world who are starving for the Word of God. And we of all churches have a message for this time that points people to, to the true righteousness of Christ in the judgment hour of earth's history that will prepare them to stand in the day of God. 
now more than ever, is not the time for us to say, you know, we better be careful how we speak our message because we might offend other people. Listen, there are people in other faiths that if you would share the message to them through the power of the Spirit, they will become the best Adventists that you could imagine. And sometimes we miss out on gaining them into our fold so that they can be workers in the three angels' messages because we're too afraid to say the message as it is. And God is saying, this is the fast that I have chosen for you. Go out and feed the hungry, help the homeless, clothe those who are naked, and give them the word of God, which points them to the true righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the message that God has given to us. And yet what often happens, because we lose sight of our mission, what happens, we'll get into the cycle of every year we have our nominating committee. Nominating committees fight over which people they want in positions of power, and yet what is the church doing? Are they going out and feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, helping the sick, giving them the word of God? Not really. We're just focusing on keeping our power structure so that we can keep the church the way we want it so that we're comfortable when we show up. That's not what we're here for. We're here to go out there to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Now, speaking of doing this type of work, of medical missionary work, Ellen White says this in Christ's Object Lessons, page 384, and this is a high calling. When self is merged in Christ... Love springs forth spontaneously. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. May, may the Lord help me. You know, we talk about character perfection being like Jesus. This is what it means. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within, not according to my time schedule, not when it's most convenient for me to go out and do some work. When it fits my schedule, I'll help you, but not when I'm busy. No, we have um, the attitude of Jesus of helping others constantly, and it's not a chore. It's a joy. It's an impulse that springs forth constantly from within. And she concludes by saying, when the sunshine of heaven fills the heart and it's revealed in the countenance. Is the sunshine of heaven, does that fill your heart? Is it revealed in your countenance? Is it revealed in my countenance? How I want that sunshine. How I want that countenance. To have that mentality to bless others and to have the impulse to help and bless others, to have that impulse constantly from within my heart. Now notice, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 58. What happens after God's people realize, hey, you know what? We are living in the judgment hour of earth's history. God is working to place his seal, 
his character in my forehead. And those only who are sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the midst of the land, only they will receive the seal of God. And when we sigh and cry for the abominations in the land, when you study Isaiah chapter 58, I believe we will be saying, hey Adventists, how come we're not doing the work that God has given us to do? We're supposed to be focusing on helping the downcast, the downtrodden, those who are poor, hungry, naked, sick, and not only in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. And so God is looking for messengers, for lay people, for pastors, for physicians, for people of all walks of life to say, hey, let's wake up, let's get on board, let's do the work that God has given us to do. And this is what happens when we do the work that God has given us to do, starting in verse 8. Notice what happens. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rear guard. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. Here's what happens when God's people get on board with the work that God has given them to do. It says that our light will break forth as the morning, that our righteousness will go before thee, that the glory of the Lord will be our rear guard. Do you know what this is talking about prophetically? Prophetically speaking, this is talking about the loud cry of Revelation 18, when an angel comes down from heaven having great power, and the earth is lightened with his glory. And you know why the earth is lightened with his glory? You've probably heard this many times before. This is the time when the character of Christ lightens the earth through his last day people. And Isaiah chapter 58 identifies how to get that character. Go out and be like Jesus. Have the spirit of Jesus. Let his spirit, when he was here on this earth, of constantly seeking to help and bless others, come into your heart and into your life. That's what God is looking for. We can have all the doctrines figured out, and we should. We can have all the prophecies figured out, and we should. But if we're not doing the work of helping and blessing others, we have yet to receive the stamp of Christ's character. God is looking for a group of people who will do such a work, and that's why I've been thankful for ASI through the years, because ASI has done things that many other people have not done. ASI goes into to places of the world, to Africa and South America, Asia, you name it, one-day churches doing wells, bringing water to people. That's the very type of thing that Isaiah chapter 58 is talking about. Now, after God says, if you do these things, this is what will happen to you, then you can then better understand the closing message of Isaiah chapter 58, which is often the only talked about portion of the book of Isaiah, 50, or of Isaiah chapter 58. Because Isaiah chapter 58 identifies that there will be a group of people at the end of time who keep the Sabbath. But before we get to teaching people about the Sabbath, we've got to show that we care about them. We've got to show that we love them. 
And so notice what happens. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 12. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. So there's a breach that needs to be put back together. What's that breach? Verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage or inheritance of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Here's what happens. After God's people wake up and do the work in the day of atonement, the medical missionary work that God has given for us to do, a repair in the breach will come in. It comes through a proper understanding of the Sabbath. How do God's people understand the Sabbath? We don't do our own pleasure. We don't speak our own words. We don't do things which please ourselves. We actually go out and help other people. You know, People talk about, well, Ellen White says you shouldn't do this or that or whatever on the Sabbath. And here's the context of what she's saying. The Sabbath is supposed to be a day, especially that we would do the Lord's work of going out and helping and blessing others. And because we have not done that work, then we ask questions of like, well, how far can I wade in before it's too deep? And you get into these silly questions of like, well, if I wade, is that breaking the Sabbath? Or if I just kind of set my foot in, is that breaking the Sabbath? And we, we can become like the Pharisees and Sadducees and all sorts of things because we're not doing the work God has given us to do. We have better things to, to be worried about our own personal pleasure on the Sabbath day when we're for, trying to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. And when we understand the Sabbath properly... We can share the Sabbath message with those who are out there, those that we have given bread to, those that we have given clothes to, those that we share the word of God with. Then we can point them, point them to the true Sabbath and say, this is God's holy day. This is the identifying mark of God's last day people. And now you can see then how medical missionary work and the Sabbath message are connected to the seal of God in Revelation chapter 7. Because the Sabbath, as Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 283, in order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. So the Sabbath is a day that identifies what our walk with God is like all week long. And when God has a group of people who experience the Sabbath the way he designed for it to be experienced, then an angel will ascend from the east having the seal of the living God, and he will place the stamp, the seal of God's character in the foreheads of his people because he has found a group of people who not only do they sigh and cry for the abominations in the land, they're not okay with sin coming into the church, but they're also proactively going out there and doing the work that God has given us to do, and that is medical missionary work. They have reversed the worst evil that could come upon the church, and that is to separate the work of healing and helping those who are downtrodden with the work of the gospel ministry. They are brought together. Let me close this section 
by reading Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle. Because the harvest is come, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself and his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. Listen, were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, or in other words, if all who professed to be Christians were doing the work of Isaiah chapter 58, of loosening the bands of wickedness, of feeding the hungry, of clothing the naked, of helping those who are sick, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. And I know for myself, by the grace of God, I want to follow him better. I want to do the work that he has given me to do better. I want to share his love with everyone that I can in a better way, in a way that properly reflects who Jesus is. Jesus wants a group of people who will be doing the work that he has given us to do. And he has sent warning that one of these days he will have a group of people who will do this work. And he is sending warning to all of us, saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. Take those images of jealousy out of my sanctuary. Get all of those abominable things and idols out of my worship service. Stop worshiping false Christ. Get the dark, deep secrets of sin out of your heart and out of your life. Surrender your life to Jesus, your Savior, your High Priest, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when you do, you will wake up. You will sigh and cry for what is happening in the church. You will do the work of medical missionary work that God has given us to do. You will share the Sabbath message with a lost and dying world. And then Jesus can place his stamp his seal, his character in your foreheads. And I, by the grace of God, want to be among that number. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.